We are in chapter 3, the church at Sardis. If you are following um, uh, in your map, uh, well, first of all, if you're in your notes, it's page 11. In the map on page 8, you could, uh, if you want to, just locate where Sardis is. You know, we've gone, uh, starts at Ephesus, goes up due north to Pergamum, over to Thyatira, now a little bit south to to Sardis. So um, if you're following, that's where we are. In your notes, if you're uh, following those, I've tried to give a a label or a term to describe each one. This is the dead church, which raises questions. We're going to have to define that. But Jesus concludes that in verse 1. Let's remind ourselves of a couple things here for those of you that haven't been here for maybe a, a week or two. What we're doing is we're going through the what are often called the seven churches of Revelation, chapter 2, chapter 3 of, Gen- uh, of Revelation. And it's where Jesus, who is Lord of the church, remember, he is Lord of the church, he's head of the church, he is evaluating these churches. And so he, as the Lord of the church, has every right to do that. And there are a lot of ways to approach it. I'm approaching it from this perspective, again, just to remind you real quickly, uh, what the renewed or revived church looks like. Or if you want to put it another way, if you would put seven, excuse me, if you would put seven qualities of the church together in terms of what the Lord of the church wants to see, there's no better place to do that than these two chapters. And so even the negatives, and there are several, even the negatives, we're trying to then turn them into a positive. So if it's a dead church, you want a church that's alive. We, got to, we have to talk about what that means. So that's just kind of the update. So with, uh, with the church at Ephesus, a church that had lost its first love, we would turn that into a positive, a church that's deeply in love with Jesus Christ. The church at Smyrna, the church that suffers, a church that's willing to suffer for its Savior. Thyatira and Pergamum, we can put those together. Churches that don't compromise in terms of truth. Churches that stand absolutely for the truth that's in God's word. I'm putting those two together real quickly. Now, this church, the church at Sardis, is the church at uh, that's a dead church. We'll turn that into a positive. This is a remarkable city, um, to be honest with you. This is a city that was, uh, and you can kind of see it. It's on one of those major east-west roads, but also a major north-south road. So it was a church that was very, very prosperous. But it was a church that it had experienced a terrible earthquake in A.D. 17. And the Caesar rebuilt the city and in rebuilding it gave them a five-year hiatus on taxes, which that's kind of a nice place to live for five years anyway. So it's a church that was very secure. It was a church that, I'm sorry, a city. I'm not talking about the church. It's a city that was experiencing this prosperity and the favor of the Caesar. And it responded as a city in one of the most devoted cities in the Asiarch area, the Roman province of Asia, committed to the Caesar cult. This is a church where worship of Caesar was thoroughgoing. And so what we're going to see then, this is a church that's so accommodated to this culture that you couldn't tell the difference between a follower of Christ and a follower of Caesar. Hence, Jesus concludes, it's a dead church. So if you look at his words in the verse, uh, as he introduces in verse 1, to the angel of the church at Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now in your notes, I remind you of this. Remember, seven spirits is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit of God. And we built on that, if you go back to the beginning of the notes in the beginning of the class. The seven stars, we read about that earlier in the book. Seven stars, Jesus is holding the seven stars. He tells us the seven stars represent seven churches. So it's another statement of him as the Lord of the church. And he reaches this conclusion. You're dead. You're dead. Now, that's, that's not a very encouraging thing to say to a group of people, is it? The Lord Jesus had never taken a path. This is a terrible way to say it. The class, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie's. He didn't. I mean, he lays it on the line. Now, we, he, we need to talk a little bit about this um, because, obviously, it doesn't mean physically dead. 
And so if it's you're dead, it must mean something is missing. This is a void, inoperative, powerless church. This is a church that's spiritually, quote, unquote, dead. And so the way in which, the way in which you, I believe, should think about this is this is a church that, and I hope you're following my logic here, because this isn't explicitly stated, but it's reasonable. Any church that's spiritually dead, you look to the leadership. The leadership is the reason this gets spiritually dead as a body of believers. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you have... If you have a leader who is passionately in love with Christ and passionately preaching God's word and passionately holding the people accountable to God's word, if you put it that way, you will always have a remnant. I'm saying every single person in that fellowship is going to be deeply committed, passionately in love with Jesus and so on, but you're going to have a strong remnant of people. So we infer from the way Jesus talks about this that this was a church which had so accommodated to the culture of Sardis, and therefore the leaders had so accommodated to the culture of Sardis, that they're having no spiritual impact at all. Now, those last several sentences, does that make sense to you? We have to infer that. We have to conclude that. Where I, uh, the church I'm involved with, uh, our pastor, lead pastor, is preaching through uh, a series on the life of Abraham. And he's using Abraham, correctly, I think, as a paradigm of faith, which he is. And he's, he, last, uh, last week he did chapter 18. And he, he and I always talk about his sermon. And he uh, reviews some things with me. And we were just talking about it. And as I listened to uh, his, I, I wasn't there, I was preaching somewhere else. But as I listened to his sermon, he did such a masterful job. Because it's the second half is where Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham meets three individuals. We think it's Jesus and two angels. But they, they come and they evaluate the city. And do you remember the dialogue Abraham has? God if there are 40 righteous people, you'll spare the city, won't you? And they go down to 10. And Abraham isn't bargaining with God. What Abraham is doing, I know you're God, you're God who is just, you're a God who's a judge, but you're also a God who is patient and gracious. And a premise that Abraham had learned, where there are righteous people, God is always patient and always gracious. But it tells us something else. Lot had absolutely no impact on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's a righteous man. The Bible calls him that. But he had absolutely no impact on Sodom and Gomorrah. So you and I, let's do that in contrast, you and I are called to be salt and light. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 5. Wherever believers are, they're salt. They're like a preservative in culture. And their light, they're always exposing, even just by their lifestyle, as well as by what they say. The darkness of culture. At Sardis, they were not salt, and they were not light. They were just like Lot. They had absolutely no impact. So Jesus says, you're dead, quote unquote. Void of all power, void of all influence, you're spiritually dead. That's why this particular church, the church at Sardis, has rather significant application for North American evangelicalism. And it's something I think each one of us, you know, I, Matt challenged everybody at church to think about your own life and your own witness. Are you being salt and light wherever God has you? And so we can conclude, I think, from, from this evaluation of the Lord of the church, Jesus, that this is a church that was having absolutely no impact on the culture at Sardis. Now, are you with me? Any questions? Do, do you want to talk about that a little more? Or you kind of, I'm trying to really embellish this idea of dead. 
Make sure you understand. It's a metaphor, but it's an important figure that the Lord is using. Uh, please, Jim. Um, I, I think in the early end of this study, you said that these were, each one of these churches were key churches. So this was a dead church. How could it be a key church? Well, it, <coughs> when I was introducing a key church in terms of the Roman Empire, these were the Asiarchs. These were the seven key cities of the Roman province of Asia, and a church had been planted in each one of those. So it, 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 it is a key church, but it's a key city. It's one of the, they were called them the Asiarchs. And so, um, and I think that's why it's so valuable for a study, because here you see a church, church at Sardis, in a very important city, and it's having no impact at all. The next church at Philadelphia has an incredible impact on the city, and you'll see the contrast in a minute. Does that answer your question? Uh, oh. Christ starts out by saying you have a reputation for being alive, but, but you are dead. So yeah. taking that to the present day, I think there are churches who are very active and have a reputation for being alive, I suppose. Yeah. But, but, but they're not. The other question I have is, is, is Greece part of Asia? No. So no. this Asia we're talking about is the far west end of, of Asia. Uh, it would be to today modern day Turkey, ha- half modern of modern day Turkey, the western end of Turkey today. Asia Minor is a modern term, a modern geographical term. And is that Turkey, but Asia is Turkey part of Asia Minor? A, Turkey is part of Asia Minor. That's correct. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay, Mark. The Roman Empire was not a Christian nation at the, or a Christian empire at that time. And not at all. And they used to persecute Christians. Uh, why did not persecute that church? Was it that compromise of that church to appease to the Roman emperor so they can survive? Something like that? I'm not sure we could say that yet. You don't remember, the empire-wide persecutions by the Roman Empire did not start till 250 with Caesar Decius. There are localized persecutions all over the place, a Roman governor or, I mean, just any. It could be another religious-inspired group of religious leaders are persecuting Christians a lot. There's, they're very localized, and there are a lot of them, Mark. But there's no empire-wide persecution. Do you understand what I mean? Where the Caesar issues an edict. Nero did not issue an empire-wide. It was in Rome, only in Rome. But he killed the Christians of Egypt. Well, it, 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 some of them he did it's because they fled. That, but it's not. But it's not an empire-wide edict. Nero does. That's the only difference. I mean, they're localized here and there, and at the time of Nero, that's in the '60s. The strength of Christianity is in, you know, obviously the Holy Lands in Egypt, Alexandria area, up in Antioch, those areas he hit. But there's not. Wipe out every Christian kind of edict. That doesn't happen until 250. And then, and then uh, about a couple decades after that, I mean, they set up concentration camps. They so, burn all the Bibles. That doesn't happen for a while yet. We're so not in that era yet. The, the, the state the wide persecution was right before the Roman Empire accepting Christianity. That's right. Constantine in 315. That's right. So it goes very dark before it got That's right. That's right. Diocletian, who's that last emperor, then Constantine follows him. Constantine will, I believe, personally embrace Christianity, and he will legitimize it. He doesn't make Christianity the religion of the empire yet. Not yet, yeah. But it, it will come, but not in 315. But he for the Nicene. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was a bunny trail in some history. Verse 2. Now, if you look at your notes or you just look at the text, if you don't have those, the Lord Jesus, though, doesn't give up hope for this group. He lays out a, if if you want to call it this, a plan. He lays out a procedure. What he wants them to do is renew, renew their spiritual commitment to him. And so just I'll read it and just look at these two verses. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So if you look, and in the notes I tried to lay it out, 
wake up. Now that's that's a command. It's an imperative, and you know it fits with the idea that they are spiritually dead. Wake up. So we would infer too. He's, Jesus hasn't given up hope on this group of believers. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. A spiritual rehabilitation. Now we have to we have to assume that there's still there's still something there in their lives. And he's saying, strengthen what remains. Because it's about for I found your deeds not completed in the sight of my Lord. Now remember, completed, that, that is a great way to translate that. They are by no stretch mature. You might say this is a group of infant believers who haven't moved beyond one day of their salvation. There's been no growth, no depth, no maturity. Jesus says, strengthened the little bit you have as you wake up. And then he says, remember what you received and heard. Those two words translated received and heard are used throughout the New Testament for the sound doctrinal teaching. So what do we infer? They heard the truth. They knew the truth. They were learning the truth. So he says, remember what you were taught. How many times did you say to your children when, when you were raising your kids, especially when they're small, this is what you'll be facing, Andrew. Don't you remember what daddy told you last night? You, none of you ever remember saying that to your children. You never had that child with your kid, did you? I don't know how many times I said that to my children. Don't you remember what mommy and daddy said about this? It's almost like Jesus is using that language. Remember what you were taught, what you received and heard. And then what does he say? Keep it. What's another way of translating keep it? Obey. Obey. Do it. And then repent. What does repent mean? You're going in one direction, you turn and go in the opposite. So, can we conclude that Jesus still has hope for this church? Yeah? He hasn't given up on them. But his evaluation of them is severe. But he gives them, and and to me, to me, this, I I hate to make it five steps because but it's just a it's a nice way to outline it. It's not like these are five rigid steps, but there are five things involved. Wake up. Be aware of your desperate situation. Focus on what you already know, what you've received, what you heard. Obey it and repent. Stop doing what you were doing and start doing what you're supposed to be doing, if you want to put it that way. So the Lord is, is very adamant here that you are in a desperate condition, but not a hopeless condition. And he gives them a path uh, for renewal. And men, I know you probably already know this, but if you look at that two-verse cluster, that's what revival is all about. Revival is about obedience. It is about obedience to what the master has said. And it is out of a loving, deep-seated commitment to him that we respond. Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room, John 14, since you love me, keep my commandments. So revival is all about obedience. It's, it's um, let me say it another way, it's recommitting ourselves, which is really what repentance is. It's recommitting ourselves to a life of obedience to what our Lord is calling us to do and to be. And so that's what Jesus is saying. I'm not giving up on you. But you have a long way to go. And here are the things I would like to see you start doing. What role does the <clears throat> congregation have in regard to encouragement, encouragement of the leadership of the church? Um, because, I mean, if, if, if they are going 
<coughs> you're kind of varying or you sense maybe there's a softness there without really criticizing them and still making the point. How can you be an encouragement? Well, I mean, I, I liked your word right there, just in, in terms of your question, is encouraging, encouraging uh, your, your leadership. And, you know, I'm assuming you primarily mean your preaching pastor. I mean, that, some of churches have multi-staff churches. But, but all of those, but especially your preaching pastor, encouraging them, if they give a very strong sermon that's focused on God's word, or if they're not doing that, encouraging them both negatively and positively to focus on their primary role. And thank you when you do that well. One of the challenges to some extent, I don't need to punt on this either, Fred, but one of the challenges, it depends on the kind of church you have. If you have a congregational type of church government, that's easier than if you have a hierarchical church where you really don't have much to say about who your pastor is. You know, it's chosen by, you know, a local presbytery or a local national office or something like that. And that, that can be a little more of a challenge. I mean, I, I've, I've consulted with some churches where they have... They're trying to figure out what their next role is, and their leadership doesn't have the freedom to do a lot because they're really under a denominational control. And that's sad in a way, in, in my opinion. Maybe it isn't in all of your opinions. So, but I think the, regardless of the type of church government you have, to be encouraging your preaching and teaching staff to be focusing on the Word of God. The premise, the premise of the New Testament is this. Sound doctrine produces godly living. And if, there is, if that is not occurring, that is, I mean, the teaching and preaching and challenging of truth, your people are not going to grow. They're not going to grow in the things of the Lord. They just won't. That's the reality. It just doesn't happen. And this is, this is incredibly cynical. It drips from my lips as I say it. If all you do is quote from Oprah Winfrey, people are not going to grow. Now, that's an extreme statement. But you see what I'm saying? If that's what you quote from, then your people aren't going to grow from that. It might make them feel better, but there's not spiritual growth. Okay. I thought I saw another hand. Maybe I didn't. All right. Jim? Yeah. So was this letter then directed primarily at church leadership, or could this revival be, I don't know, somehow internal to the church? It is first addressed, it is first addressed to the leaders. It is, to the angel of the church, Sardis. That's the, the, the leader there. But, um, you know, another principle of revival through history, Jim, is that re- revival, re- revival is often stirred by groups of people, not necessarily by single leader or one person. That person can be the stimulus for it, but... It, it really, it's, it's often amazingly group-oriented and group-energized. So it kind of woke me up from the bottom up <laughs> kind of thing. But yet at the same time, for us, anything like that to be sustained, you need to have strong leaders who are committed to biblical truth and committed to proclaiming biblical truth. All right. Let's look at the next verse then. Verse 4 through six, a couple of things about that. There is a little remnant that have been very faithful, despite all of the accommodators and leadership, but they have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. And again, look at that language, spoiled their garments. These are people who have not accommodated. These people who have remained true, faithful, and Jesus is just saying, you know, you're going you're gonna to continue to walk with me. And in white, that's that promise of, of, the, of, the, of the heaven and the, and the white robes and the garments and all of that that we've read a couple of times. It's a great promise to these people. And then he just continues, he who overcomes. Now remember, we've seen that before in this, uh, in this book. And it echoes back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. The overcomer is the one who has put his faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't you're working it out. This is the overcomer, and that would be that remnant that's faithful, shall be clothed in white garments. That's the promise. I will not erase his name from the book of life. That's continuing the promise. 
I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And though all three of those promises are threads through the Bible of what God promises, oops, of what God promises to those who are his. You'll be clothed with white, your name will be in the book of life, and I will hold you up as a trophy of my grace. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing other parts. So that is a very consistent promise throughout the scriptures. It's in the old and it's in the new. What God promises to those who are his. So it's a, it's a great encouragement to those who have that remnant, but it's also an encouragement to those who need to repent. Because they repent, this is the same promise that's, uh, that's made to them. And so again, he who has ears, let him hear what Spirit says. That's why I think we can continue to apply this at all ages, to all churches, at all time. This is a message to the church. Oh, Jim, can I back up to the other end of verse 3? It says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come to you a thief, and you will not know the hour I could come. So, you know, they talk about repentance. I know that, but if the hour is like death or something, I mean, I know that, you know, because I think of the thief of the knife as like, this, you know, you're coming, you know, that language through the New Testament, you know, in the end times. When he makes that statement in the end of verse 3 there. Right, and I see it. Um, first of all, like a thief is a simile. Now that you are right, in another passage, Jesus uses that. It's in his Olivet Discord about yeah. the, the end times and when yeah. I'm coming and so on. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure we should make it necessarily mean that. This is, this is the way I think we should understand this. Jesus is saying, as he says throughout the New Testament, repent or you will face my discipline. I'm not going to let you go on like this. You'll face my discipline. And in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, those who habitually sin and defy the Lord uh, will face his discipline because he loves those. And he will not let them uh, just go on for his name's sake as well as for the sake of the impact they will have on others. So I think this is a warning of discipline, okay. uh, Tom. I think that's the main point of this. Okay. I'm sorry, I should have addressed that. I, I forgot to do that. Uh, I had a Sunday school teacher as a small kid growing up. And, um, and I had heard that he, when he was young, he had, had left his teaching position and uh, so I, I called him on the phone, and I, I, I said, you know, what, what is it that's troubling you? And he wouldn't talk about it. And he said, it's too late for me. <laughs> and, and by that, you mean too late for him in, in terms of his eternal destiny, you mean? Yeah. Or? and uh, I knew that biblically was wrong, but he was so convinced that it was right. And um, so I think, you know, people, even in this group, and, and our friends, can be discouraged to that point. Mm. And um, what do you say? <clears throat> okay, now, let me just probe with a question or two to make sure I'm, I've got this accurately. I don't want to respond in a, in a way that doesn't apply. So the assumption you're making and everything you know, this man was a believer. I mean, he had made a decision of faith in his life and, and, and so on. Then the second thing would be, and you probably don't know the details, but there had been things which he had done, whatever they may have been, that from his perspective caused him to lose his salvation for God to take back the gift of grace and so therefore his conclusion was I've done such despicable things and so on that there's no more hope for me would that accurately summarize where he was okay it is really important for us and, and this I'm glad you raised this one it is one it is very very important for us to remember <clears throat> 
these two words, right, whether they're phrases really, Position in Christ, I'll just, there, there are about 50 different passages I can use, but I'll just use these Romans 1, 6, uh, Romans 6, 1 through 14, Romans 8, oh, it's about verse 33 through 39, and there are many, 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 many others. The Bible, it seems to me, Fred, is very clear, crystal clear. This position is secure. Who you are in Christ. We talked about this a lot of different ways. Your identity, another way of saying this, this is your identity. This is who you are, okay? And that is secure. At the end of this paragraph right here that is in Romans, Paul says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he just goes through a whole long list. Nothing. And so the, the Bible, it just, again, I can cite a, a bunch of other passages. The Bible keeps sending the message that this is, this is who you are. This is your identity. But your, and this is the metaphor that's often used in the New Testament, but our walk with Christ is to be a walk of obedience. As we learn, as, we, as we're in God's word, as we're growing, as we're maturing, we're around other men who are believers and so on, and we're learning what that walk of obedience is, which is motivated by love. The reality is that sometimes, I'll use this, sometimes we fall. That's an F. It doesn't look like one, but that's an F. Sometimes we fall. You know, we, we uh, can fall back into an old pattern of sin, and it can become very serious, with very serious consequences. <clears throat> So, does the fall indicate I've lost that? The New Testament, the New Testament material, and actually even the material that's in the Old Testament, the, Old Te the New Testament material says, no, if you fall and there is no repentance, then you're a candidate for the Lord's discipline. And that is the New Testament word that's used. And that's a wonderful word because when, when, when that word is used, you and I understand what that word means. Because remember that part of this position is you are in the family of God. You are adopted into the family of God when you put your faith in Christ. So your relationship to God is now heavenly father to child. How does a father treat his children? Does he abandon them? I'm sorry, you've done such bad things, you're no longer my child. I totally don't recognize you. No. I'm going to tear the bishop first you get, go somewhere else. Get somebody else to become your dad. I mean, that's a ridiculous, I know sometimes that happens, horrible fathers, but the, the fact is, no matter what your child does, they're still your child. And so the Heavenly Father, who's perfect as a Heavenly Father, disciplines his children. That's Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines those who are his children, and it demonstrates he loves them. What is the object of discipline? To get your child back to loving obedience. And so I think he's saying to the church at Sardis, Repent and get back to the position of loving obedience, what I've just asked you to do. Wake up. Strengthen what's there. Remember what was taught to you. Begin to again, obey it again and repent. Because if you don't, this is what I'm going to do. And that is the consistent. So your friend, Fred, and I have no idea the circumstances, but I see nothing in the scriptures that teach us God will take back the gift. That identity and that position, and there, but there are instances where 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 is an example where God says, I'm going to take some of you home. 
It's just how serious it is to the Lord. So that you not do any more damage. So, the, and I've, I've, I've never had in all the years, I do pastoral counseling, I don't do any therapeutic stuff, but um, I've, had, I've had guys who are, they're really struggling with things that have been a part of their life and they cannot seem to get the victory over them. They can't break those habits and it just takes time and eventually they're able to by God's grace. But I've never, I've never had anyone say to me what he said to you. I'm beyond hope. I've ne- I've never had that situation. I'm sure there have been many instances, but I've just never had that. But if I've all I've gone through what I just did with you guys, I've gone through this many times with men. This is how you have to see yourself, and you have to understand how God sees you. When you put your faith in Christ, everything changes, and God sees you now as His child, not as a condemned sinner. You're now His child. And, and that's a wonderful way to think about it because how does, I remember our Father in Heaven is a perfect Father. He never does things, He never makes mistakes in His dealings with us. So that means His discipline will always be the perfect, whatever we need, He'll do it. And His goal is always to get us back to a, a point of loving obedience. Okay, uh, did I think that I answer your question? Okay, I wasn't sure if there was anything else, Daryl. Can I ask the question that it mean then if we don't see that there has been any dif- discipline, then there's reason to wonder if they ever worked. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That can know a person. That's and that's hard, Daryl, because I I never feel real comfortable making an evaluation like that. But in First John. He says something that's really interesting. It's near the end of the book. As he's talking to these people, he's writing from Ephesus, so probably people, he says, you know, there are some that have left us. They're gone out for months, but you know, folks, they never really were a part of us in the first place. Now, he says that it's kind of, but I think there are some people, and I think, that's why I'm uncomfortable in ever making an evaluation, but God knows it. But in a way, you're right. If, there is just an egregious, defiant, habitual pattern of sin in a person's life for years and years and years. And there's no repentance and there's no, you just think, you know, are you ever really been a part of us? You know, in the language of First John. But, you know, for you and me, I think it's the message. I've said this to young guys because uh, I've worked a lot of with young guys, but you know, just make sure that this is your identity. If you're not sure about that, let's get that straight now. But I mean, but once you make that decision of faith, then your position is secure. Your identity is clear. And uh, so, if there's a doubt, you know, let's go back and let's just review that. Have you made that decision of faith? If not, I think we're referring to is if we did not see the discipline in action in our life or in somebody's else's life, then we think that that person is not being saved for the first time. And in, in, in my opinion, humble opinion, I think God's grace is more than, and you correct me if I'm wrong, okay? Uh, God's grace is more than his judgment. You know, and Jesus, one more of the time, he always says, you know, he does the miracle first and then asks for repentance and asks for faith. And we don't know if God is disciplined, that person or not, because we don't know if he's repenting or not to start with. And we don't know that he's struggling. You know, maybe we know a person that we know that he's a bit habitual in his, his sin, but we don't know how much he's struggling with that and how much he is also trying his best. And God yeah. will judge him, not not from our own judgment, you know, thankfully, because well, our judgment is a very earthly-based and agenda-based kind of uh, judgment. Well, Jesus talks in Matthew 18 about the things God uses. He uses his word. He uses other people. He uses circumstances. And Mark, I am never comfortable making an evaluation of where a person is. Or even God's judgment. I'm just not. I just I I don't know what's going on. Only the Lord Jesus knows a person's heart. And all if some and I would never I would unless it's a very dear friend, I wouldn't confront somebody on at that level. Are you being disciplined? But only if it was a very close friend. But for the most part, if a person wants to talk about that, I'm more than happy to talk about it. 
But I, I'm very, very, very careful making an evaluation like that. I, I don't, I'm not sure we always know what is going on in a person's heart. And like you said, they may, they inside they may be just ripping themselves apart because God's word is speaking to them and they're just not responding. So he's obedient. Well, that's it. I mean, but God's long-suffering and he's patient and, and so on. Well, let's move into Philadelphia. Isn't that a great name? That's close to where I was born. <laughs> you know, the most important state in the Union. Let's break some of the sincerity of this. Let's get a little humor in here. It's been intense. <laughs> but Philadelphia was, if you're following in, look in your map, it's, it's now to the, kind of to the west a little bit of... Uh, um, of, of Sardis, and it's a, it too is a very prominent city <coughs> along that key Roman road. Um, and what is really interesting in this church is Jesus Christ has nothing negative to say about this church. It's a little bit like Smyrna. Smyrna, he didn't have anything negative to say about them. He doesn't have anything negative. But what I want you to do is look with me and how the Lord Jesus is described here. He is he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Interesting. Interesting language. First of all, he who is holy. Now that's a remarkable term to use. I mean, it doesn't surprise you at all, but remember something. Holy is only used to describe the essence of God. He says to us, I want you to be holy as I am holy. So this is simply just a claim of Jesus, who he is. And he's true. And that, of course, it's a self-evident term, but it's a, it, there is no false, no lie, no deception in Jesus, he's absolutely true. So when he speaks, you trust what he says. He is the great amen. Because amen means truth. Remember Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, look at the Greek, it's amen, amen. So it's a declaration again of his essence and of his character. And the key of David is his position. His essence, his character, and his position. Now the key of David... I wrote this in the notes, but I think you know what this, that's messianic. That's the Messiah. The Messiah is the son of David. And key, it, throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, key is always the symbol of authority. Key is what opens. He has the authority and power to open and shut what he declares. He opens the doors of heaven or shuts the doors of heaven. He is the one who says, as I evaluate, depart from me. I never knew you. So the keys of David is a, is a statement, uh, well, maybe not a figure, a figure of speech that affirms his sovereignty and his messianic authority. So it's a, it's a great, I mean, you could preach a whole sermon just in verse 7 on who Jesus is. In terms of his essence, he's holy. In terms of his character, he's true. In terms of his position, he's the sovereign, messianic king. It's a great, it's a great description of Jesus. So based on that, he then evaluates the church at Philadelphia. And as I said again, he has nothing negative to say about this church. Verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Curious language. We saw that earlier when we were in Ephesus. Philadelphia was located at a very strategic point in the Roman province of Asia. They sat at the top of a central plateau, and in Philadelphia was like the opening door to the rest of the plateau of Asia. So Jesus had said, I presented this opportunity to you to represent me. So what's the conclusion? Did they represent him well? Yeah. They've obeyed him. They haven't denied his name. And when he says a little string, they acknowledge. This is really a neat way to say this. They acknowledge their total dependence on him. 
There's no pride. There's no arrogance. Instead, this is a church that acknowledged their dependence on him. A little power, humanly speaking, but with him, they accomplished what he wanted them to accomplish. They seized the opportunity. They kept his word. They did not deny his name in face of the Roman governor's persecution. This is a great little church. This is a church that suffered a lot in representing Christ. So he promises them three things. If you look at the notes, it's just a nice way to organize it. He promises them vindication. He promises them protection. And he promises them reward. First of all, he promises them vindication. Verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Apparently, with the, with the complicity of the Roman governor, it was the Jews in Philadelphia that were persecuting these believers. And he refers to them as those who occupy the synagogue of Satan. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Not the true synagogue, but the synagogue of Satan. And then look at what he says. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. That's vindication. Men, when will that occur? Look, you obviously didn't hear that. I will make them come and bow down at your feet I know, and to know that I've loved you. When will that occur? When you repent. Huh? When you repent. But, but probably at the second coming. I mean, um, you know, it, it's possibly Jesus has in mind here in space-time history, but there's no evidence that that ever occurred. But the language, the language that the Lord Jesus uses here is the language like you see in Philippians 2, that there's coming a point when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So when will, vin- when will true vindication occur? At the return of Christ. He will then settle all accounts. Now, why, if you are experiencing significant persecution, why is a verse like that an encouragement to you? As far as we know, all of these believers at Philadelphia died and never saw that verse fulfilled, as far as we know. I mean, as far as we know, there was never an embracing of Philadelphia, of the people in Philadelphia, of the faith of Jesus Christ. And everybody bowed down and said, Jesus is Lord, and those who have held it, we, you know, we acknowledge that. So how's this going to function for you? Assurance and uplifting to them. How? Why? Because it tells them they are on the right path, whether it is bad times around them or not, they are on the right track. Because they've been obedient. Okay. It's the same hope for the future that we have. Okay. You and I, you and I have the hope that is centered and it's all wrapped around the return of Christ when he will settle all accounts. I mean, that's, that's a biblical principle. When Christ returns, he'll settle all accounts. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a major premise that goes through Scripture. Keep your eyes on the future. Because you may not see things vindicated while you're still living. Now, isn't that, isn't that a major part of faith? I mean, look, look at Abraham. Abraham died, and he did not see one of the promises God made to him fulfilled. He owned a little plot of land in Beersheba, bought a plot of land where he's going to bury himself and his wife, and he had some herds and got a well. He didn't have people as, as large as the stand of the uh, seashore and the stars of the sky. But he had the sun. Well, he, had, he saw the sun. But what I'm saying, he didn't see the whole thing fulfilled. But he was a man of faith. Did he believe God was going to fulfill those promises? Yes. Okay. You and I are living... And, uh, and, you know, some of us are a little older than others, but a lot of what God's promised us, to rule and reign with him, a brand new resurrected glorified body, 
could be a joint heir with his son, all of those, you're not going to see any of those fulfilled. Until Jesus comes back for us, or you, you and I die, go to be with him, and come back with him when he comes back. That's when we'll see that fulfilled. And so what Jesus is saying here to this little church is a fundamental principle. Stand for me, and those who persecute and oppose you, I will vindicate you. I will take care of them. Sometimes God chooses to do it in space-time history, and you see it. A lot of times, you don't see it. But it's the idea that God is going to vindicate me. God is going to vindicate what righteousness and what obedience to him and following him is going to look like. God will vindicate. And that's why Jesus says, and then Paul repeats it in Romans 12, remember something God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so the Lord Jesus uses that as a teaching. Do not, in your interpersonal relationships with people, do not be motivated by revenge. That's really an easy principle to live by, isn't it? All of you said, Joel laughed, and the rest of you were saying, oh, man, what does that say about Joel? <laughs> Again, I'm trying to get a little levity and humor into this intense discussion. I, I, hope, I hope you're not missing the point of this. Trusting in the justice of God means he will always vindicate. That's important. It's important for you and me because those who are outside of Christ are almost always motivated by a desire for revenge, vengeance. You and I are people of justice, not vengeance. All right, number two, that is in terms of what the Lord promises them. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, they have endured, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now this has caused no small controversy. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, as I wrote in the note, here is another one of these already not yet dynamics of Scripture. A major testing, if you will, you could translate that, by the way, that word testing could be translated tribulation. It's thalipsis in Greek. It can, it's translated either way. So if you say an hour of tribulation, but that will come. The Roman Empire and everything about this part of Asia is going to absolutely collapse. The Lord says, I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. You will not be an object of that. The not yet is the promise that Jesus makes to the saints, to those who are his children. When the great tribulation comes, I will deliver you from that. What do we call that? Pardon me? I didn't hear what you said, Jim. Are you talking about the great tribulation? Yeah. What, what does Jesus promise to the believers about the tribulation? That you will not be the object of my wrath. What's that event called? The rapture. Wherever you're going to put it in the timeline. And that's why most understand that Jesus is making, it's a twofold promise whatever the testing that's going to come, because this is, remember, he was here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a message to all the churches. Be faithful, persevere, and I will deliver you from the tribulation. I will take care of you. I will protect you. And the New Testament keeps reviewing again and again. We are not the object of God's wrath in the words that the Lord Jesus uses in Matthew 20, where we get the word tribulation, the word wrath is all over. Such a promise. And the last one is a, is a promise of a reward. I'm coming quickly, hold fast, in order that no one takes your crown. He who overcomes, remember that, we've 
seen that word many times. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now, verse 12 is the language of Revelation 19. This is the language of the new Jerusalem. This is the language of the new heaven and new earth. So if you put all of that together in verse 12, what is he saying? I promise you, you will be a citizen in the new Jerusalem. Now that is true for all who overcome. Remember, overcome, 1 John 5, 5, he who has put his faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a specific promise to them, but it's a promise to all believers. You will be a citizen in the new Jerusalem. And, and we see that we read this in Revelation. He's going to put his name upon us. I mean, we are his. So it's just that promise. Hang in there. Don't give up. Your future is glorious. I'll vindicate you. I will protect you. And you're going to be a citizen of the new kingdom. Keep going. Now, is that applicable to you and me today? It is. Hang in there. Endure. Persevere. Don't give up. I'm promising you, if you're being persecuted, you're being treated horribly, I'll vindicate you. I will protect you from the coming tribulation. And you will be a citizen in the New Jerusalem. Keep going. Keep at it. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. It's, I mean, the language there is the language that's throughout the scriptures. Don't give up. Persevere. I'll vindicate you, I'll protect you, and you'll be a citizen in the New Jerusalem. I know we don't get excited in this Bible study on lunch and Wednesday, but that's something just to be excited about, because that's you and that is I. It, we are overcomers. First John 5, 5, we put our faith in Christ. That's what he's promising. It's a quick question, but I don't know if it's Is that kind of a... Kind of a prophecy about what is about to come because this mom came in and destroyed those seven churches. It, it, it very well could be. You're asking something very specific, and I know I don't know if I can say that. It, specific, I'm asking. But well, I mean, it, it it was a part. I mean, there were, but there were a number of other things that occurred uh, in that particular area. But you're, the most devastating was in the seventh century with Islam. Well, tomorrow, I mean, uh, next uh, uh, Wednesday, we will finish, well, I think we will, I'm pretty sure we will, but we'll finish this material on the seven churches, and we're going to look at the, the last major church, which is the church at Laodicea, which is, in some ways, it's a sad ending, but it's a very powerful ending to this seven church sequence and uh, i want to really zero and then we're going to do some summarizing and pull all this together and go through it what does the revived renewed church look like what is the church that jesus is really pleased with what does it look like and we'll go through all seven of those characteristics again and if we have time which i think we might we'll introduce chapter four and chapter five because chapter four and chapter five were in the throne room of god and it's, 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 it's an incredible two chapters. There's almost nothing like this anywhere else in the Bible. And I'm going, to run, I'm going to pay particular attention to the structure of that throne room as it's described. It's like a series of concentric circles around the throne. And that's, a, that's an interesting way to, to study that. And it is teaching us something, which is what I want to try to get to. So it's a great, great section. So we will definitely not get through four and five. We'll probably introduce it. So... Hope you come back. It's a great way to continue in our study of Revelation. Yes. So next week you wanted us to study four and five. No, uh, just look at the church at Laodicea. Yeah. Why does Jesus say to them, "I want to spit you out of my mouth"? You'll never, you won't forget that question. To spit you out of my mouth. So, but we'll get to that. Lord, we're grateful for the study that we have here in the Book of Revelation. Thank you for these men that take very uh, very structured uh, time out of their very busy schedule. They have to get here to the building. They are here an hour, and then they have to get back to their office. So that's quite a commitment. 
I, I thank you for their willingness to study the Word of God with uh, the group, and I pray that you will bless them richly for that. Help them to grow in their walk with you. Help them to grow in their relationship with you, and help them to to have that desire and that commitment of loving obedience to you, to walk with you in loving obedience. That, I think, is one of the most significant application of goals of Bible study. So I pray for them, all of them, in that particular area. We do remember Fred. Uh, Daryl said that he asked that we'd remember him and his family. Uh, we do not know the details, but God, you do. And we ask you to whatever that need is, whatever that specifically involves, God, that you'd meet that. If there's need for comfort, you'd give that. A need for additional strength and, and your power, we ask for that. Or whatever that is, we just ask you to wrap your arms around Fred and his family at this time. And then any other needs in the group here of, of men. Uh, we don't normally take time for prayer requests because it it can take time. But you know each need, you know each man, you know the areas of their life. Meet each one of those according to your perfect will. Bless them richly. Give them your strength and your confidence, the assurance of your walk with them. May their hand be tightly in yours as they walk through life. And I ask you to help them to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.